This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gordon Mitchell. Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1 The Journals of Robert Falcon Scott. Arranged by Leonard Huxley. Second Part of Chapter 2 Awaiting the Crozier Party. Wednesday, July 5. Atkinson has a bad hand today. Immense blisters on every finger, giving them the appearance of sausages. Tonight Ponting has photographed the hand. As I expected, some amendment of Atkinson's tale, as written last night, is necessary partly due to some lack of coherency in the tale as first told, and partly a reconsideration of the circumstances by Atkinson himself. It appears he first hit Inaccessible Island and got his hand frostbitten before he reached it. It was only on arrival in its lee that he discovered the frostbite. He must have waited there some time, then groped his way to the western end thinking he was near the ramp, then wandering away in a swirl of drift to clear some irregularities at the ice foot, he completely lost the island when he could only have been a few yards from it. He seems in this predicament to have clung to the old idea of walking upwind, and it must be considered wholly providential that on this course he next struck Tent Island. It was round this island that he walked finally digging himself a shelter on its lee side, under the impression that it was inaccessible island. When the moon appeared he seems to have judged its bearing well, and as he travelled homeward he was much surprised to see the real inaccessible island appear on his left. The distance of Tent Island, four to five miles, partly accounts for the time he took in returning. Everything goes to confirm the fact that he had a very close shave of being lost altogether. For some time past, some of the ponies have had great irritation of the skin. I felt sure it was due to some parasite, though Soldier thought the food responsible and changed it. Today, a tiny body louse was revealed under Atkinson's microscope after capture from Snatcher's coat. A dilute solution of carbolic is expected to rid the poor beasts of their pests, but meanwhile one or two of them have rubbed off patches of hair which they can ill afford to spare in this climate. I hope we shall get over the trouble quickly. The day has been gloriously fine again, with bright moonlight all the afternoon. It was a wondrous sight to see Erebus emerge from soft filmy clouds of mist as though some thin veiling had been withdrawn with infinite delicacy to reveal the pure outline of this moonlit mountain. Thursday, July 6th. Continued. The temperature has taken a plunge to 46 degrees below last night. It is now 45 degrees below, with a 10-mile breeze from the south. Frost-biting weather. Went for a short run on foot this forenoon and a longer one on ski this afternoon. 
The surface is bad after the recent snowfall. A new pair of sealskin overshoes for ski, made by Evans, seem to be a complete success. He has modified the shape of the toe to fit the ski irons better. I am very pleased with this arrangement. I find it exceedingly difficult to settle down to solid work just at present, and keep putting off the tasks which I have set myself. The sun has not yet risen a degree of the eleven degrees below our horizon, which it was at noon on midwinter day, and yet today there was a distinct red in the northern sky. Perhaps such sunset colors have something to do with this cold snap. Friday, July 7. The temperature fell to 49 degrees below last night, our record so far, and likely to remain so, one would think. This morning it was fine and calm, temperature 45 degrees below. But this afternoon a 30-mile wind sprang up from the southeast and the temperature only gradually rose to 30 degrees below, never passing above that point. I thought it a little too strenuous, and so was robbed of my walk. The dogs' coats are getting pretty thick, and they seem to take matters pretty comfortably. The ponies are better, I think, but I shall be glad when we are sure of having rid them of their pest. I was the victim of a very curious illusion today. On our small heating stove stands a cylindrical ice melter which keeps up the supply of water necessary for the dark room and other scientific instruments. This iron container naturally becomes warm if it is not fed with ice, and it is generally hung around with socks and mitts which require drying. I put my hand on the cylindrical vessel this afternoon and withdrew it sharply with the sensation of heat. To verify the impression, I repeated the action two or three times, when it became so strong that I loudly warned the owners of the socks and company of the peril of burning to which they were exposed. Upon this, Mears said, but they filled the melter with ice a few minutes ago, and then, coming over to feel the surface himself, added, Why, it's cold, sir. And indeed so it was. The slightly damp, chilled surface of the iron had conveyed to me the impression of excessive heat. There is nothing intrinsically new in this observation. It has often been noticed that metal surfaces at low temperatures give a sensation of burning to the bare touch. But nonetheless, it is an interesting variant of the common fact. Apropos. Atkinson is suffering a good deal from his hand. The frostbite was deeper than I thought. Fortunately, he can now feel all his fingers, though it was twenty-four hours before sensation returned to one of them. Monday, July 10 We have had the worst gale I have ever known in these regions and have not yet done with it. The wind started at about midday on Friday, and increasing in violence reached an average of sixty miles for one hour on Saturday the gusts at this time exceeding 70 miles per hour. This force of wind, although exceptional, has not been without parallel earlier in the year, but the extraordinary feature of this gale was the long continuance of a very cold temperature. On Friday night the thermometer registered 39 degrees below. 
Throughout Saturday and the greater part of Sunday, it did not rise above 35 degrees below. Late yesterday, it was in the minus 20s, and today at length to zero. Needless to say, no one has been far from the hut. It was my turn for duty on Saturday night, and on the occasions when I had to step out of doors I was struck with the impossibility of enduring such conditions for any length of time. The fine snow beat in behind the wind guard and ten paces against the wind were sufficient to reduce one's face to the verge of frostbite. To clear the anemometer vein, it is necessary to go to the other end of the hut and climb a ladder. Twice whilst engaged in this task, I had literally to lean against the wind with head bent and face averted, and so stagger, crab-like, on my course. In those two days of really terrible weather, our thoughts often turned to absentees at Cape Crozier, with the devout hope that they may be safely housed. They are certain to have been caught by this gale, but I trust before it reached them they had managed to get up some sort of shelter. Sometimes I have imagined them getting much more wind than we do. Yet at others it seems difficult to believe that the emperor penguins have chosen an excessively windswept area for their rookery. Today, with the temperature at zero, one can walk about outside without inconvenience in spite of a fifty-mile wind. Although I am loath to believe it, there must be some measure of acclimatization, for it is certain that we should have felt today's wind severely when we arrived at McMurdo Sound. Tuesday, July 11. Never was such persistent bad weather. Today the temperature is up to 5 degrees to 7 degrees. The wind 40 to 50 miles per hour, the air thick with snow, and the moon a vague blue. This is the fourth day of gale. If one reflects on the quantity of transported air, nearly 4,000 miles, one gets a conception of the transference which such a gale affects and must conclude that potentially warm upper currents are pouring into our polar area from more temperate sources. The dogs are very gay and happy in the comparative warmth. I have been going to and fro on the home beach and about the rocky knolls in its environment. In spite of the wind, it was very warm. I dug myself a hole in a drift in the shelter of a large boulder and lay down in it, and covered my legs with loose snow. It was so warm that I could have slept very comfortably. I have been amused and pleased lately in observing the manners and customs of the persons in charge of our stores. Quite a number of secret caches exist, in which articles of value are hidden from public knowledge, so that they may escape use until a real necessity arises. The policy of every storekeeper is to have something up his sleeve for a rainy day. For instance, Evans, P.O., after thoroughly examining the purpose of some individual who is pleading for a piece of canvas, will admit that he may have a small piece somewhere which could be used for it, when, as a matter of fact, he possesses quite a number of rolls of that material. Tools, metal material, Leather, straps, and dozens of items are administered with the same spirit of jealous guardianship by Day, Lashley, Oates, and Mears, while our main storekeeper Bowers even affects to bemoan 
imaginary shortages. Such parsimony is the best guarantee that we are prepared to face any serious call. Wednesday, July 12. All night and today, wild gusts of wind shaking the hut. Long, ragged, twisted wind clouds in the middle heights. A watery moon shining through a filmy cirrostratus. The outlook wonderfully desolate with its ghostly illumination and patchy clouds of flying snowdrift. It would be hardly possible for a tearing, raging wind to make itself more visible. At Windvane Hill, the anemometer has registered 68 miles between 9 and 10 a.m. A record. The gusts at the hut frequently exceed 70 miles per hour. Luckily, the temperature is up to 5 degrees, so that there is no hardship for the workers outside. Thursday, July 13. The wind continued to blow throughout the night with squalls of even greater violence than before. A new record was created by a gust of 77 miles per hour shown by the anemometer. The snow is so hard blown that only the fiercest gusts raise the drifting particles. It is interesting to note the balance of nature whereby one evil is eliminated by the excess of another. For an hour after lunch yesterday, the gale showed signs of moderation and the ponies had a short walk over the flow. Out for exercise at this time, I was obliged to lean against the wind, my light overall clothes flapping wildly and almost dragged from me. Later, when the wind arose again, it was quite an effort to stagger back to the hut against it. This morning the gale still rages, but the sky is much clearer. The only definite clouds are those which hang to the southward of Erebus summit, but the moon, though bright, still exhibits a watery appearance, showing that there is still a thin stratus above us. The work goes on very steadily. The men are making crampons and ski boots of the new style. Evans is constructing plans of the dry valley and Ketlitz glacier with the help of the western party. The physicists are busy always. Mears is making a dog harness, Oates ridding the ponies of their parasites, and Ponting printing from his negatives. Science cannot be served by dilettante methods, but demands a mind spurred by ambition or the satisfaction of ideals. Our most popular game for evening recreation is chess. So many players have developed that our two sets of chessmen are inadequate. Friday, July 14. We have had a horrible fright and are not yet out of the wood. At noon yesterday, one of the best ponies, Bones, suddenly went off his feed. Soon after, it was evident that he was distressed and there could be no doubt that he was suffering from colic. Oates called my attention to it, but we were neither much alarmed, remembering the speedy recovery of Jimmy Pig under similar circumstances. Later the pony was sent out for exercise with Crean. I passed him twice and seemed to gather that things were well, but Crean afterwards told me that he had had considerable trouble. Every few minutes the poor beast had been seized with a spasm of pain, 
had first dashed forward as though to escape it and then endeavoured to lie down. Crean had much difficulty in keeping him in and on his legs, for he is a powerful beast. When he returned to the stable he was evidently worse, and Oates and Anton patiently dragged a sack to and fro under his stomach. Every now and again he attempted to lie down, and Oates eventually thought it wiser to let him do so. Once down, his head gradually drooped until he lay at length, every now and again twitching very horribly with the pain, and from time to time raising his head and even scrambling to his legs when it grew intense. I don't think I ever realized before how pathetic a horse could be under such conditions. No sound escapes him. His misery can only be indicated by those distressing spasms and by dumb movements of the head turned with a patient expression always suggestive of appeal. Though alarmed by this time, remembering the care with which the animals are being fed, I could not picture anything but a passing indisposition. But, as hour after hour passed without improvement, it was impossible not to realize that the poor beast was dangerously ill. Oates administered an opium pill, and later, on a second, sacks were heated in the oven and placed on the poor beast. Beyond this, nothing could be done except to watch. Oates and Crean never left the patient. As the evening wore on, I visited the stable again and again but only to hear the same tale. No improvement. Towards midnight, I felt very downcast. It is so very certain that we cannot afford to lose a single pony. The margin of safety has already been far overstepped. We are reduced to face the circumstance that we must keep all the animals alive or greatly risk failure. So far, everything has gone so well with them that my fears of a loss had been lulled in a growing hope that all would be well. Therefore, at midnight, when poor Bones had continued in pain for twelve hours and showed little sign of improvement, I felt my fleeting sense of security rudely shattered. It was shortly after midnight when I was told that the animal seemed a little easier. At 2.30 I was again in the stable and found the improvement had been maintained. The horse still lay on its side with outstretched head, but the spasms had ceased. Its eye looked less distressed and its ears pricked to occasional noises. As I stood looking, it suddenly raised its head and rose without effort to its legs. Then, in a moment, as though some bad dream had passed, it began to nose at some hay and at its neighbor. Within three minutes it had drunk a bucket of water and had started to feed. I went to bed at three with much relief. At noon today the immediate cause of the trouble and an indication that there is still risk were disclosed in a small ball of semi-fermented hay covered with mucus and containing tapeworms. So far not very serious but unfortunately attached to this mass was a strip of the lining of the intestine. Atkinson, from a humanly comparative point of view, does not think this is serious, if great care is taken with the food for a week or so, and so one can hope for the best. Meanwhile, we have had much discussion as to the first cause of the difficulty. The circumstances possibly contributing are as follows. Fermentation of the hay 
insufficiency of water, overheated stable, a chill from exercise after the gale. I think all of these may have had a bearing on the case. It can scarcely be coincidence that the two ponies which have suffered so far are those which are nearest the stove end of the stable. In future, the stove will be used more sparingly. A large ventilating hole is to be made near it, and an allowance of water is to be added to the snow hitherto given to the animals. In the food line, we can only exercise such precautions as are possible, but one way or another, we ought to be able to prevent any more danger of this description. Saturday, July 15. There was strong wind with snow this morning and the wind remained keen and cold in the afternoon. But tonight it has fallen calm with a promising clear sky outlook. Have been up the ramp, clambering about in my sealskin overshoes, which seem extraordinarily satisfactory. Oates thinks a good few of the ponies have got worms, and we are considering means of ridding them. Bones seems to be getting on well, though not yet quite so buckish as he was before his trouble. A good big ventilator has been fitted in the stable. It is not easy to get over the alarm of Thursday night. The situation is altogether too critical. Sunday, July 16. Another slight alarm this morning. The pony China went off his feed at breakfast time and lay down twice. He was up and well again in half an hour. But what on earth is it that is disturbing these poor beasts? Usual Sunday routine. Quiet day except for a good deal of wind off and on. The Crozier party must be having a wretched time. Monday, July 17. The weather still very unsettled. The wind comes up with a rush to fade in an hour or two. Clouds chase over the sky in similar fashion. The moon has dipped during daylight hours and so one way and another there is little to attract one out of doors. Yet we are only nine days off the light value of the day when we left off football. I hope we shall be able to recommence the game in that time. I am glad that the light is coming for more than one reason. The gale and consequent inaction not only affected the ponies. Ponting is not very fit as a consequence. His nervous temperament is of the quality to take this wintering experience badly. Atkinson has some difficulty in persuading him to take exercise. He managed only by dragging him out to his own work, digging holes in the ice. Taylor is another backslider in the exercise line and is not looking well. If we can get these people to run about at football, all will be well. Anyway, the return of the light should cure all ailments physical and mental. Tuesday, July 18. A very brilliant red sky at noon today, and enough light to see one's way about. This fleeting hour of light is very pleasant, but of course dependent on a clear sky, very rare. Went round the outer berg in the afternoon. It was all I could do to keep up with Snatcher on the homeward round, speaking well for his walking powers. Wednesday, July 19. Again calm and pleasant. 
the temperature is gradually falling down to 35 degrees below. Went out to the old working crack north of Inaccessible Island. Footnote i.e. a crack which leaves the ice free to move with the movements of the sea beneath. End of footnote. Nelson and Evans had had great difficulty in rescuing their sounding sledge, which had been left near here before the gale. The course of events is not very clear, but it looks as though the gale pressed up the crack, raising broken pieces of the thin ice formed after recent opening movements. These raised pieces had become nuclei of heavy snowdrifts, which in turn, weighing down the flow, had allowed water to flow in over the sledge level. It is surprising to find such a big disturbance from what appears to be a simple cause. This crack is now joined, and the contraction is taking on a new one, which has opened much nearer to us and seems to run to Camp Barn. We have noticed a very curious appearance of heavenly bodies when setting in a northwesterly direction. About the time of midwinter, the moon observed in this position appeared in a much distorted shape of blood red color. It might have been a red flare or a distant bonfire, but could not have been guessed for the moon. Yesterday, the planet Venus appeared under similar circumstances as a ship's side light or Japanese lantern. In both cases, there was a flickering in the light and a change of color from deep orange yellow to blood red but the latter was dominant. Thursday, July 20, Friday, 21, Saturday, 22. There is very little to record. The horses are going on well. All are in good form, at least for the moment. They drink a good deal of water in the morning. Saturday, July 22. Continued. This and the better ventilation of the stable make for improvement, we think. Perhaps the increase of salt allowance is also beneficial. Today we have another raging blizzard, the wind running up to 72 miles per hour in gusts. One way and another, the Crozier party must have had a pretty poor time. Footnote. This was the gale that tore away the roofing of their hut and left them with only their sleeping bags for shelter. End of footnote. I am thankful to remember that the light will be coming on apace now. Monday, July 24. The blizzard continued throughout yesterday, Sunday, in the evening reaching a record force of 82 miles per hour. The vein of our anemometer is somewhat sheltered. Simpson finds the hill readings 20% higher. Hence, in such gusts as this, the free wind must reach nearly 100 miles per hour, a hurricane force. Today, Nelson found that his sounding sledge had been turned over. We passed a quiet Sunday with the usual service to break the weekday routine. During my night watch last night, I could observe the rapid falling of the wind, which on dying away, left a still atmosphere almost oppressively warm at 7 degrees. The temperature has remained comparatively high today. I went to see the crack at which soundings were taken a week ago. Then it was several feet open with thin ice between. Now it is pressed up into a sharp ridge, 3 to 4 feet high. 
The edge pressed up shows an 18-inch thickness. This is, of course, an effect of the warm weather. Tuesday, July 25, Wednesday, July 26. There is really very little to be recorded in these days. Life proceeds very calmly, if somewhat monotonously. Everyone seems fit. There is no sign of depression. To all outward appearance, the ponies are in better form than they have ever been. The same may be said of the dogs, with one or two exceptions. The light comes on apace. Today, Wednesday, it was very beautiful at noon. The air was very clear, and the detail of the western mountains was revealed in infinitely delicate contrasts of light. Thursday, July 27, Friday, July 28. Calmer days. The sky rosier, the light visibly advancing. We have never suffered from low spirits, so that the presence of day raises us above a normal cheerfulness to the realm of high spirits. The light, merry humor of our company has never been eclipsed. The good-natured, kindly chaff has never ceased since those early days of enthusiasm which inspired them. They have survived the winter days of stress and already renew themselves with the coming of spring. If pessimistic moments had foreseen the growth of rifts in the bond forged by these amenities, they stand prophetically falsified. There is no longer room for doubt that we shall come to our work with a unity of purpose and a disposition for mutual support which have never been unequaled in these paths of activity. Such a spirit should tide us over all minor difficulties. It is a good omen. End of chapter 12. Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1. The Journals of Robert Falcon Scott. Arranged by Leonard Huxley.